New Media Comedy Worldwide Studios. New Media Comedy Worldwide presents Comedy Legacy Series with Jim Mandrinos. And now, your host, Jim Mandrinos. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Uh, I'm Jim Mandrinos, and this is the Comedy Legacy Series presented by New Media Comedy Worldwide. And uh, we're focusing on legends in the comedy community. People who have information, knowledge, and stories to pass down to the next generation of comedy artists. And this is our premiere episode. Um, and it's being recorded during the uh, COVID-19 lockdown. So we're recording thanks to the fine folks at uh, Zoom, who uh, we're using their platform to get everything down and, and documented. And uh, this is going to be not only a video podcast, but also an audio podcast, which you can order from all the online places and play it with you in, in your car or work at your job when your life gets back to being normal. But till then, you know, stop by our YouTube channel, uh, New Media Comedy Worldwide, and subscribe and have fun watching this. Um, my first guest for the pilot episode, I couldn't have come up with anybody better. Tom Dreesen is one of the most remarkable show business careers. Um, he was half of the first uh, and only black and white comedy team of all time. And he's made over 60 appearances on The Tonight Show. Um, countless appearances on television in general, literally going into the hundreds. Uh, it's a 50 year show business span. And we haven't even touched on the big credit, which is 16 years of being Frank Sinatra's opening act. Uh, and playing crowds of 40,000 in Hawaii. Um, it's a 50-year comedy legacy, and he has so much information to pass on to you. And we sat down, and it is a wonderful conversation that we had together. Um, and you know what? Without any further ado, um, this is the, the Comedy Legacy series. And ladies and gentlemen, Mr. Tom Dreesen. Hey everybody, this is Jim Andrinos and welcome to the Comedy Legacy Series and I could not think of a better guest to, to start our series with than Mr. Tom Dreesen. Tom, thank you so much for coming in and being a part of this. We really do appreciate it. Well, it, being this is, you know, we're all on lockdown and we're not able to go out and make a living and it, you've offered me so much money. I had to do it. I just had to do it. Yeah, he did. He, uh, he's getting Bitcoins for this. It's not <laughs> even real cash. But, you know, but we'll talk about that later on. Let's be honest with the people. I had to pay you to get on this show. <laughs> you know what? It, that is so not true. You, <laughs> you, you've been on every show. This is literally the smallest program you've ever been on. It's all downhill from here. Jim. Yeah. I made yeah. it to the top. It's all downhill from here. <laughs> Let's, um, I want to jump right into it because this series is designed to, to pass on knowledge of guys like yourself, who've been doing this forever, uh, to the new generation of comics who didn't grow up with you. I was very fortunate when I started stand-up in, in the 1980s. I got to see guys like you on television all the time. I got to work in clubs with guys like you all the time. These young comics, they don't get to do that. They don't get that knowledge passed down from, from one to the other. Um, we were talking the other day and uh, reminiscing a little bit about Mousy Lawrence, who introduced us on a street corner decades ago. Um, and the younger generation doesn't get to see that, so they don't understand the amount of intricate work it takes to really do stand-up. So I wanted to start with, with a key moment for all stand-ups. When did you first feel you were doing this right, that you had a grasp on what you were doing? Okay, let me digress on one thing when you say sure. that. For all professions, if you want to become uh, a brain surgeon or a stand-up comedian, or, or, or a, a pilot, study the masters, study the masters. If you're going to become a brain surgeon, you wouldn't just go watch, uh, you know, study brain surgery. You'd go watch the brain surgeons operate. And that's what I did. And that's what every young comedian watch the other comedians that, that, you know, some that you'll like or some you won't like, it doesn't matter. Those who've been doing it longer than you, if they're on stages that you want to be on one day, watch them. That's, that's, what I did, and that's how I ended up getting on The Tonight Show. I watched those comedians on The Tonight Show and what they were doing to succeed. Now, going back to your original question, which was what? No, you <laughs> said, when did I? When, when you know, you know, when you first set out in stand-up comedy, 
every comedian starts out emulating another comedian. I can almost always tell when I watch a new comedian on an open mic night, if I happen to stop in, that I'll say, oh, he likes uh, Jerry Seinfeld or, or he likes Chappelle. Or, you know, I can see that they're using that style. But eventually, what you have to do, we all start out emulating another comedian because we know that works. You know, so we go up there and we're doing an impression of a comedian. And then one day you let a little bit of you out. And if it gets a laugh, if it doesn't get a laugh, you pull back in and you start doing the impression of the comedian. Again. One day you let a little bit of you out. If it gets a laugh, then you let a little bit more of you out. And eventually you evolve. And eventually you become you on stage. Candid Camera had the greatest line of all, caught in the act of being yourself. You know, Picasso said, you know, do you, do you want to, uh, you know, be a great painter? You know, I try to emulate another painter. Try to paint like another artist. I dare you. You'll fall short. But in falling short, you'll find out who you are. And when that day arrives, when that day arrived, when I really felt so comfortable on stage as me, as Tom Dreesen, not, not anybody else, just me, that's when I started to really grow. And, and, and I make this analogy to young comedians all the time. If you're a guy or a girl, pretend that your spouse is in the kitchen and you got 25 people in your living room and dinner isn't ready yet. And your spouse panics and says, Jim, Jim, go, go out to go tell them about growing up in New York. And, and, and because dinner won't be ready for 25 minutes. You walk into the living room and there's all these people saying, look, dinner's going to be ready in a few minutes. But I got to tell you, when I was growing up, going to school, my mother used to always, and you start telling, it's a conversation, not a presentation. Write that on the blackboard. It's a conversation, not a presentation. Is it your act? You damn right it's your act. But it's your job to make it look like it's not an act. You know, it's a conversation, not a present. And so when, you, when I tell young comedians, every night when you walk out on that stage, you're walking out into your living room. Most comedians are intimidated. Most young people, men and women, are intimidated. They think we're going into the, their house, you know, and that intimidates us. No, it's our house. Put that in your frame of mind. Perceive it as this is our house, and they're in our house. If they could do what we do, they'd be up there. They can't do what we do. That's why they're in the audience. So when you walk out on stage, you're going pretend you're in your living room and it's a conversation, not a presentation. You know. Yeah. I want to talk a little bit about legacy because you're one of the most interesting figures in the history of stand-up comedy. You're the, the quintessential bridge comic. You started out in the 1970s, but you're more closely associated because of your 16 years opening with Sinatra with a lot of the old school guys. Um, people don't realize you were instrumental in the strike in the comedy store in, I believe it was 79, uh, and, and helping comics actually get paid for their work. And what was it, did you ever feel a pull between the two generations? Because you work, and people don't realize this, you work audiences of 20,000 and 40,000 when you worked with Sinatra, and yet you'll still walk on stage at the Laugh Factory in front of 150 people on a Sunday night. Is there a difference in the way you have to play it? And and did you ever feel like there was a pull in your career? Like there was a what in my career? A pull in your career between the two worlds. Well, yeah, let me start with the pull in my career. And, and then I want to remember the other question because there's something just flashed in my mind when you said, oh, about the difference between 20,000 and 120. You know, yes. Um, uh, the, the again what was the first question <laughs> did, you ever, did you do you feel more in line with one generation of comics oh, yeah, yeah, than okay. another here was the difference yeah i always make this analogy one night at the um at the laugh factory i was upstairs going over my notes trying out new material this was not too long ago and there were two other young comedians around the corner and they were talking about me i heard one of them say you know tom dreesen's here tonight and the other comedian said oh yeah he's old school and I was listening, and the other guy said, he's old school. What do you mean? He said, well, he doesn't use the F word. And the other comedian said, he doesn't use the F word. What does he use for adjectives? And I stuck my head around the corner, and I said, adjectives. That's what I use for adjectives. Now, that's the difference between the two generations. When I started out, everywhere you went in America, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. The next question out of their mouth was, oh, yeah? You ever been on Johnny Carson? If you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. In 1975, wherever you went, that's what, what was being said. You know? uh, so you might want to be a comedian or going to be a comedian, but you weren't one now because you weren't on the Johnny Carson show. So how do you get on the Johnny Carson show? We've watched that. You had to do material that could make grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, and the kids laugh. You had to do that kind of material and not work blue. You couldn't say go to hell. You couldn't say in there. So that, there was no cable television in those days. And that was the, the, the pathway to success. One appearance on the Tonight Show 
Freddie Prince got a sitcom the next day. I did one appearance on The Tonight Show. CBS signed me to a development deal the next day. You know, a guy named Lee Curlin from New York happened to be watching, who was an executive with CBS at the time. And next, I was in the unemployment line one day, and the next day my whole life changed. I never stopped working from that time. I did 61 appearances on The Tonight Show. But that was the difference in those days. You had to, you had to learn how to write clean material. Today, because of cable. And by the way, I'm not a prude. I know every dirty joke there ever was and ever will be. Man. And, and I was aboard ship. I mean, I spent four years in the Navy. I, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I love that kind of material. And, and I laugh at that kind of material. But I'm in show business. That's two words, show and business. I can make more money on one corporate date than you can make three months in comedy clubs working every week you know, on one corporate day. So it just was a business decision, you know. I, again, I'm not approved. The other answer to, when, when you're doing, if I took a 20-minute routine and went to the Laugh Factory working out new material in Hollywood here, and I took a 20-minute routine, and I took that same 20-minute routine to opening for Sinatra in front of 20,000 people, the same exact material takes on a totally different dynamic. Totally different dynamic because, you know, it's all about timing. We set our timing off of their laughter, you know. And, and I tell you what, I can teach stand-up comedians so much about stand-up comedy, joke structure, et cetera, et cetera. I can't teach you timing. You either have it or you don't. And it's something, it's a gift. And you either have it or you don't. And, and, and to try to dissect comedy, it's boring sometimes. But if you picture laughter, like, like you're standing in front of a pond of water, and you got a rock in your hand, you throw the rock up in the air, and the rock goes up as high as it can go, and then it starts coming down, and it hits the pond, and it spreads across the, the pond. That's laughter. You never move on your next line when the laugh is on its way up. You'd step on your laugh. You know, you'd never, you know, I learned that years with a comedy team about stepping on your partner's laughter. But so whenever, some nights when I'm working on stage, when we always, when it's coming down, some nights when it's coming down to here, I move on my next line. Some nights I let it go to here. Some nights I let it hit the pond. And some nights I let it ripple all the way across the pond. I don't know till I get out there. I, don't, I can't tell you that my brain knows that. So that dynamic of 20 minute material at the Laugh Factory, going out in front of, as I did with, in Hawaii one night with Frank Sinatra opening for 40,000 people, you know, 20,000 and mostly arenas. You, that laughter is going up. You've got to let that laughter, you have to feel that in your insides when you move on the next line. If you're working a small audience and, and the laughter's going, uh, you, you'll move a little bit quicker. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. Until the laughter dies. Again, when you're dissecting comedy, it gets boring. But that's the difference between working a huge 20,000-seater as opposed to a 110-seater. The same material takes on a different dynamic. That's great. And we're, we're going to have some boring conversations because we're going to talk structure. But before we talk structure, I want to talk a little bit about history. Um, a lot of people may not know, I hope they, they do know by this point, but you started as half of a comedy team and a historic comedy team. You were the, the first interracial uh, comedy team in America, uh, along with Tim Reed. And what was it like, I know you started in Chicago, I know a lot of uh, the clubs you worked were predominantly African-American, including uh, your first uh, album was recorded uh, in an African-American uh, comedy venue. What was it like, you know, a, working as part of a team, and then B, also the difference, culturally, the difference in what's commonly referred to as the Chitlin circuit and the mainstream circuit. Tim Reed and I were America's first black and white comedy team. I never thought I'd ever be in show business. It was the furthest thing from my mind. I never, never even dreamed of it, you know. And we wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor, a concept that I had. I, I was in the JCs, a city group at that time. I just gotten out of the service and uh, Tim had just gotten out of college. And, and, um, uh, it, and so I wrote this drug education program and Tim helped me with it and it became very successful. I'm teaching grade school children, elementary school children, the ills of drug abuse with humor. You know, they weren't teaching drug education in those days at a college level or a high school level, let alone at an elementary school level. But I felt we had to get to the children early. And the program became very successful with the JCs. It became number one in 50 states and in 22 foreign countries where JCs were through their publications as a model program on teaching elementary school children. And one day, a little eighth grade girl, because we, we, we joked off of one another, we, we played records, got the kids' attention, and did jokes off of one another. And then once we got their attention, we planted the seeds. One day, a little eighth grade girl leaving the classroom said, 
you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. And the thought of a black-white comedy team intrigued us. No one had ever done that before. So we started writing what we thought was material. You know, it was terrible what we read some of the stuff earlier. And uh, anyhow, but long story short, we finally went up on stage one night in a jazz room. There were no comedy clubs in America in those days. There were none. So we start. Uh, you know, going, we, we'd go over a little jazz group tour and say, could we get up when you break, when you take a break from your set? And the first night we went up on stage and we bombed something horrible. We, we, all we wanted to do is remember our material. We went going fast. You know, we're the comedy team of Tim and Tom. He's Tim, I'm Tom. <laughs> we were going so fast. We rushed off the stage and we got the owner in the corner. How'd we do? How'd we do? What'd you think? What'd you think? I said, I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance to laugh. Slow down. Come back tomorrow and do it again. And the next night we came back. And, and it was, it was a life changing moment for me. Every comedian, including yourself, will tell you this story that something I wrote, something original I wrote, got a laugh that first night. And when that happened, it was like one of those epiphanies, like one of those B movies where the dark clouds open up and the sun bursts through. My whole being went, Oh yeah, this is what I want to do. I want to be a stand up comedian. And, 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 and a, a, a digress here. The following morning, it was a Friday night. The following morning was a Saturday morning. I couldn't sleep all night because I, I had been wandering aimlessly in life, ending up in bars at two, three o'clock in the morning with my buddies. And I kept thinking, I don't belong here, but I don't know where I belong. I just, I, I started praying, God, what am I supposed to be doing? This can't be it. After that first left, the next morning, a Saturday morning, I went to the church where I had been an altar boy when I was a kid growing up, the church in my neighborhood, Ascension Church. And, and there was no service there. There was no one in church. I got on my knees, I prayed, I said, God, I know what I want now. I want to be a stand-up comedian. If you let me make my living as a stand-up comedian, I'll never ask for anything else. I'll do charities, and I was making all those promises. And 50 years I've been a stand-up comedian, you know, so my prayers were answered, you know. But for Tim and I, from that point on, when we started working, there were no comedy clubs, so we used to work what they call the Chitlin Circuit, black-owned, black-operated nightclubs, an affectionate term given the High Chaparral in Chicago, the Burning Spear, Guys and Gals Lounge, the Cotton Club, the in Detroit, the 20 Grand, where Motown was still in Detroit at that time. All the Motown acts broke in their, their act before they went to Vegas. They broke them in at the 20 Grand. The uh, Sugar Shack in Boston, um, the Club Harlem in Atlantic City, New Jersey, before they had gambling. And so we worked the Chitlin Circuit, developed our craft. We, we put an album out. Uh, and then uh, eventually uh, we start working the Playboy Circuit. And that's where we really honed our craft, the Playboy circuit, because you're doing four or five shows a night. There were 17 Playboy clubs in America in those days and two resorts, you know, Great Gorge in New Jersey and Lake Geneva, Wisconsin were the resorts. And, and the Playboy clubs in New York, Playboy, we were in New York City many times, you know, uh, <laughs> doing five, six shows a night. So that's where we really honed our craft. The team after six years split up and, and we both went on our separate ways. But in those days, there was, you know, the Vietnam War was raging. I had just gotten out of service. Students were protesting all over America. There were riots. African-Americans were rioting in every major city because uh, uh, they felt disenfranchised from the system. And here Tim and I were going across the land trying to make people laugh. We did 11 prisons in one year. We did colleges, high schools. We would go anywhere there was racial tension. You know, and we, not to preach, we just wanted to make people laugh. And, and uh, the fourth time on stage, a guy put a lit cigarette out in Tim's face and tried to beat the bejesus out of me. I boxed when I was in the service, but he outweighed me by 100 pounds and, and pummeled me pretty bad. Uh, at University of Illinois one night, a guy made an ice ball in the snow outside and came in through it and hit me right in the face with it, you know. 95% um, of the people liked what Tim and I did, but there was a, that one element, that 5%, uh, if, if there was a black guy who hated white people with a passion, if we were working on a black club, if he hated white people with a passion, he wasn't mad at me. He was mad at Tim for being with me. See, Tim would be an Uncle Tom. And if there was a redneck, a white guy who hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. He was mad at me for being with Tim. I was the N-word lover. And they would do numbers on me. One night got me in a, in a men's room down in Atlanta, Georgia, and tried to do a number on me, but they didn't get away with it. But, but I mean, that was 5%. The other 95% liked what we did. So we paid dues that no comedy team ever had to pay in the history of show business. But... We both, we, the team broke up after six years. We're still the best of friends. They never broke up our relationship. And, uh, and it's historic what we did. It really is. The, and I'll quit with this, Jim. The interesting thing, yes, we were America's first black and white comedy team. And that speaks volumes. But what speaks more volumes 
is that we were the last. There's never been one since. That was 45 years ago. Yeah. And you guys did have a successful six-year run. And, you know, people don't realize that that friendship is a lifelong friendship. I, you were on WKRP with Cincinnati with, with Tim. And I, I know he's joined you on some benefits that, that have been widely publicized. The, the feeling of community in the stand-up circle is very underrated. Everyone thinks that this is a solo art form and it's just you up there and there's no camaraderie. But I found for me, most of my lifelong friends are comedians. Most of the people that I rely on are other artists. Have you found that to be similar in your life? Absolutely. And I tell you this, I was in the service four years. You know, guys that, 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 that there's something about being in a service with guys, you know, all the things about when, when, the, when the shit hits the fan and people say it's about God and country. I'm not going to say it's not that, but it's really about Jimmy, you got my back and I got your back. I got, you know, whenever you've gone through hard times together, we, we're going to look out for one another. Stand-up comedy is almost like combat to me. <laughs> the nights you bomb, the struggles you go through, the, the times you can't, you can't get work. Uh, my wife left me three times because she hated show business. Every comedian has that where their spouse wasn't happy with what you're doing. So we, we bond together because we've been through hell together. You know, you, you know think of this. Think of this. And this is why comedians are the most important profession on the planet. I say it's the greatest profession on the planet. And I tell stand-up comedians this all the time. Insurance companies years ago did a survey around the world for eight years, all around the world, of the 10 fears of man. Death was fourth. Pain was second. Getting up in front of an audience was the number one fear of mankind. Now, if you can get up in front of an audience and you're a house painter or a lawyer or a truck driver, and you can talk about your profession for one hour, if you can talk in front of an audience for one hour, in front, of, in front of an audience, you're in less than 1% of the population of the world. But if you can get up and make people laugh for one hour, you're in less than one millionth of 1% 1 of the population of the world. Do you know how special you are, stand-up comedians? It's the greatest profession on the planet. And I tell them, don't tarnish it. This is what got you there. And what will get you out of there is drugs and alcohol. Do you know, I've known five stand-up comedians who committed suicide. You know, I've known five real good stand-up comedians I'm talking about, top-notch stand-up comedians. I've known another 25 that died from drugs and alcohol that committed suicide that way. You know, don't tarnish the gift you have. If you have that gift of timing and that gift of comedy, you're very special because of this. Laughter is healing, and this you know. Norman Cousins wrote a book called Laughter Math. He wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. This was a man who was diagnosed with a heart condition and they were, he was going to die. And the doctors had him in the hospital. They told him because of the stress in your body, you're, you're in, you're, you have, don't have long to live. He laid in the hospital and he thought, if stress, negative input made me ill, then positive input would make me well. So he checked out of the hospital. He read only I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera. He only watched I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, The Marx Brothers. He listened to comedy albums and lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Because of him, UCLA did research. They've always known that laughter is psychologically a deterrent. That if you're watching a comedian on stage or, or listening to comedy, you're not thinking of your problems. The brain can't think of two thoughts at the same time. It can't function two thoughts at the same exact time. So if you're laughing at a comedian, you're not, laugh, you're not thinking of your problems. So it's a psychological deterrent. But because of UCLA doing research, they found out when the human body laughs with a hearty laugh, and you're laughing so hard that tears are coming down your eyes, and you go, Oh, and a sense of well-being comes over your body. Endorphins have been released from your brain into the bloodstream. There's been an actual chemical change going through your body. So laughter is not only psychologically a deterrent, it's physiologically therapeutic. So comedians are physicians of the soul. Dr. Jim. Well, thank you, Dr. Dreesen. Um, what I love most about uh, watching you in the past two days, I literally looked online and watched every video of yours that I could possibly find. Um, and they're snowflakes. You seem to pride yourself when you're on TV of doing different material all the time, which is not the norm for a lot of comics. Why that decision? Why the decision to, um, I, I'm looking back at uh, the, uh, the appearance you made on Fox um, on a Huckabee show. Um, with the relevancy, talking about your daughter, talking about texting. Um, a lot of comedians, when they get to where you get, could, because of their audience and the fact that they're doing mostly corporate shows, 
rely on doing the same material over and over and over again. You don't. How come? Well, because I want to grow. <clears throat> if you're going to stay in this business, you know, you, you want to keep growing. I've, I maintain, I think that if you are not a writer, it's, you're not going to survive long in the business. Those, the, uh, or if you, if you can afford writers, then <clears throat> none of us can when we start out. So if you're, if you're a writer of stand-up comedy and you're a stand-up comedian, you're going to survive a lot longer. That's the creative process that goes inside of us. But also, I was trained that way. The Tonight Show, as I said, that was the stairway to success, if you could get there. Well, Johnny Carson, well, I know a lot of guys that did three Tonight Shows or did four or five and, and didn't do any more. I did 61, you know. Carson wanted you back on if you kept coming up with new material, not, not two guys going to bar jokes you know, original material, original monologues. And so it was, I was trained that way. I, every time I walked through that curtain on the Tonight Show, when, when I did stand up, my mind was on, what am I going to do next? You know, <laughs> you know, everything became material. But I, I also, the joy, there's no describing, as you know, something you created. Now think of this, we're artists. Sometimes artists paint their whole lives and never know if they were successful after they die. You know, their paintings are worth after they die. We are artists. We create a joke, which is really an, an artistry to create a joke. You set up line, punchline that gets a big laugh. We think of it during the day, and that night we go on stage, boom, and we find out whether it's good or not. I mean, it's such a rewarding profession. And so keep coming up. Here, here's the way to do it, though. I, a lot of comedians get a set 20 minutes, and you've got new material, and you don't want it. Don't do it on a Monday night in front of a, 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 a small crowd. Do it on a Saturday night in front of the biggest crowd you can and put that material in the middle. You know this beginning works and you know the ending works, but put the new material and give it a chance. You know, give it a chance to grow. Don't, don't go up on an open mic night and do three or four new jokes up front and they don't get a laugh and you bury them. You're not giving them a chance, you know. So like I say, do it on a Saturday night in the middle when you, when you got a good crowd. And then you'll give that material a good test. Now, um, I want to talk a little bit about your transition from the team uh, to a solo artist, because I believe it was 76 when you and Tim split up? And, and probably 75. Late, I did my first Tonight Show December 1975. All right, so it's late 75, uh, and shortly after you moved from Chicago to Los Angeles, what was the transition like there? Because Los Angeles had a burgeoning comedy scene. As you said, when you started with Tim, there were no clubs when you guys started, and then you go to Los Angeles, and there's the comedy store, and other places like that that were embracing stand-ups. What was it like to, to finally go to somewhere that had more of a community basis? The reason you had to go to Los Angeles in 1975, Johnny Carson <clears throat> was in New York until 1972. When The Tonight Show moved to the West Coast, you know, and, and, and by, by 75, again, you know, uh, the word all through the comedy community was one appearance on The Tonight Show, you're launched. So everybody, migrated out to the West Coast. That's where I met David Letterman and Jay Leno and, and, and Gallagher and Robin Williams. And I mean, the, 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 the comedy, my friends to this day, you know, uh, they're still my good friends to this day. We, were all, we all migrated out to the West Coast and there was only one game in town. Oh, I should have shut that off. Well, you know, that's probably Letterman calling saying he's watching this show. That's and great. We'll have him on next. You're on next, David. It'll ring one more time and then it'll shut off. I should have put the plug on that. I'm sorry. Don't even worry about it. There'll be one more, one more ring and stop. Yeah. So, one more. That's it. Shut up. Anyhow, uh, so that that's what brought us out to the West Coast. There was no improvisation then. There was no laugh factory. There was one game in town, the Comedy Store. It was on Sunset Boulevard. I mean, there was a couple little small clubs. Uh, Murray Langston, the unknown comedian, had a club in um, and over in the Valley called uh, Showbiz, and and it, it, comedians could get up there. But the, the comedy store was on Sunset Boulevard, and that was where the action was. And all the, in those days, there was Merv Griffin, uh, Mike Douglas, uh, Johnny Carson, um, uh, Dinah Shore, Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. They were all looking for comedians. And every night, the comedy store, those talent coordinators were in there. The excitement, the energy was unbelievable. Because every night, some comic would come off stage and say, I just got the Merv Griffin show. I just got the Dinah Shore show. Canada, there were several TV shows up in Canada that sent their talent coordinators down from Canada to pick comedians and take them up to Canada and they'd do three shows. They'd take three shows that would air throughout the year. So the energy, comedy became the rock and roll of the 70s. It was as hot as it had ever been. Talent court, I mean, um, um, 
uh, yeah, talent coordination from all the shows, but also casting people from, from, uh, for sitcoms. We're looking for young comedians to get on sitcoms. So the energy was hard to describe. And, 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 you know, and, and when you got out there, when I got out there, my wife wrote me a Dear John. Uh, I, I went out to the West Coast thinking I'd be there about two weeks and I'd, I'd be a star, you know. I mean, I, didn't, I wasn't that naive, but, but I was really positive, enthusiastic. When I got out there, I found out how hard it was. I ended up having no place to stay. I ended up sleeping in an old abandoned car, a Nash Rambler. The front seat came down and, and it was up on blocks. It wasn't my car. I hitchhiked every day to the comedy store every night and, and signed up and waited outside to get on. After about 30 days, I finally got an audition where Mitchie would look at me. And, and that was more pressure than your first Tonight Show. Because if Mitchie said, no, nah, I don't like him, then, and by the way, everybody, whenever they do Mitchie, they do her voice. Nah, I don't like him. There's only two people in comedy. Everybody changes their voice, Jay Leno or Mitchie. They'll say, and I talked to Jay the other day, and he said, Tommy, how you doing? Have you? <laughs> Same way with Mitchie. We always have to do her voice. But when Mitchie, if Mitchie said, I don't like you, that was the end of it. I mean, you had to go back to, to Chicago or to Toledo, wherever you're from. But if she liked you, you know, and I did five minutes in front of her, and she said, well, you've seen you have stage presence. We'll find a place for you here. And then I said, hey, could I MC for you sometimes? Because I used to MC in Chicago. She said, well, that's, uh, you know. So I wanted a chance to get into the club. And I worked my way from 2 o'clock in the morning, you know, 1.30 in the morning to finally the prime time and, on weekdays. And then finally midnights and weekends and then prime time. And then I became one of the regulars at the comedy store. And then the Tonight Show saw me because I pestered them. And it changed my whole life, you know. But that, again... The comedy store was the place to be in the 70s. And, and, and I can't tell you the careers that were launched, you know, from doing the Tonight Show, going from there to the Tonight Show. And um, you were also part of uh, probably one of the most important events for comedians historically, and that was the comedy store strike in the late 70s. And with as much of it being a home as, as it was for you, um, that had to be a little bit scary. That had to be a hard choice for you what were the circumstances around that what made you because comics were split on both sides fairly evenly from what i've read it wasn't equally but but what happened was now I, I i finally got my first tonight show and i'm on my way i'm doing like i say dinosaur merv griffin mike douglas johnny carson midnight special rock concert soul train american bandstand i'm doing all these shows i'm touring with sammy davis jr i'm, I'm opening at caesar's palace with sammy davis. i'm on my way I'm making six figures and, and, you know, I'm on my way. And, but each time I'd come off the road, the first thing I'd do is sign up at the comedy store because I was also keep doing tonight shows, keep coming up with new material for the tonight show. And so, and also that was where, where all my buddies were, David Letterman and, and, and Jay Leno and, and uh, you know, Robin Williams and, and all those guys, Gallant, I mean, all the guys, guys and girls, Elaine Boozler, these were dear friends of mine. And it was like coming back to school with them, you know, and hanging out after we all hung out till one, two, three o'clock in the morning at Cantor's on Fairfax Avenue. So I would always go to the comedy store. And now the comedy store had one room called the original room that Mitchie had. It seated about 110 people. And we all worked there. But she bought an extension of the building, and there was a showroom in there of 400 seats that was called the main room. But she'd have like Rodney Dangerfield appear there, Jackie Mason, and they would get the door. You know, she'd get big action there, and they'd get the door, and she'd get the liquor. I come off the road one time, I'm doing real good, and, and uh, I come off the road, and I sign up for the comedy store, and I go to work in the original room. They said, No, Tom, you're in the main room. I said, The main room? I go in the main room, and it's Jay Leno, David Letterman, Tom Dreesen, Elaine Boozler, and Robin Williams. And we're working the main room. All new, they're all newbies. I'm, I, I was the first one to break out doing national TV. But I said, oh, wow. And I, I did my show. And I said, this is like back in Vegas. This is really fun. And, you know, big crowd. I go to Cantor's afterward. And all the comedians are sitting around this restaurant we went to. And we're all sitting around. And Jay Leno came in. He said, hey, this is BS, man. She pays these other people. You know, and, and maybe it took five of us to fill the room. But, it, you know, we should, we should be getting something and blah, blah, blah. Anyhow. I'm making money. I'm just, I'm listening to my fellow comedians and they're going on and on and on. And they decided to have a meeting. So I go to the meeting or my friends and it's chaos. 110 comedians all talking at the same time and this chaos. And I had been in the JCs, as I told you earlier, and I, you know, I knew Robert's rules of order. I knew how to conduct a meeting, how to chair a meeting, how to serve on a committee, how to, how to you know, subcommittees. Anyhow, so I listened. I went, they only decided one thing after that night is to have another meeting. And I went to that meeting and it was utter chaos again. 
And this time I stood up and said, hey, let me, let me just chair the meeting. And I got them organized. And when you got them organized, this was a bright group of people. A lot of the comedians in my era came out of, the, you know, I came out of poverty. I don't have a degree from academia. I have a doctorate from the streets. I grew up on the streets, you know. But these were kids out of college who had done major protests and they're very smart. And once we got them organized, oh, they were a force to be reckoned with, you know. And, and they got organized and finally I started going, Mitzi and I were friends and I, I loved Mitzi. I really did. I had a lot of fun with her. And, and, uh, and, I, and I, I hold her dear to my heart to this day. But I went to her saying, I figured we could solve this. And she dug in. She said, no, I'm not paying them. I'm not paying them. They don't deserve to be paid. You know, they're, they're not, I, this is a, a um, college. This is where they're learning their craft. And, and I kept bringing back to the comedians. And finally, they, they wanted to go on strike. You know, and I went back to Mitzi again. And I said, Mitzi, the comedians want to go on strike. But in, in the interim, let me tell you this. One night, I'm laying in bed with my wife. And this is, you know, I jumped out. And I said, I got it. I got it. Meanwhile, I got my wife back. because We separated, but she came back. But she said, what's wrong with you? What's, I said, I got it. Why didn't I think of this before? I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I go into Mitzi's office at 10 o'clock in the morning. I'm waiting for her. I said, Mitzi, I got it. You're charging $5 at the door. Charge six. Charge $1 more. Let the comedians have that $1. If 100 people come in, they split 100 bucks for the night. If 200 people come in, they split 200 bucks for the night. Doesn't cost you that. She said, no. They don't deserve to be paid. This is not, this is a college. This is where you work on your craft. That numbed me because I thought it was about money. If it was about money, we could solve this problem. It was about power, power, you know. And I, I, I went back numb. I, I, I walked out of the other day. I said, we can't solve this problem if it isn't about money. So I went back and the comics said they wanted to go on strike. I, I begged Mitzi again. She said, not one red effing cent. That was her last word. And the comics went on strike when they were organized. There were... Uh, 19 comedians who crossed the picket line, 18 guys and one girl, uh, none of them of, of any name value at that time. You know, one of them later became really popular, really famous. But, uh, the, 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 but the, the, the majority of the comedians stayed out and we walked the picket line for almost six, a little over six weeks. And, uh, and finally we won. A, a, a tragic incident happened to make it, to make us win. And then a tragic incident happened after we won. Thus came a book called I'm Dying Up Here by William Needlecedar that uh, was also a series. I was a script consultant on there. I was very unhappy with it because they made comedy look so dark, like we never had any fun. You know? But it was a real interesting time. And when we won, comedy clubs all across the land began to pay. We began to pay you know, all, in London. You know, they began to pay. We, you know, uh, we had a major effect. In New York, the comedians never went on, on a picket line when we won. Uh, Silver Friedman, Bud Friedman's wife, told me how she resolved it. You know, they, they resolved it the, the first night. So it was a tragic time that to this day, a lot of the comedians did not talk to those who crossed the picket line. And, and I feel real bad about it. I never went back to the comedy store for over 40 years, but I went back recently. They just did a special. Um, and Mike Binder is, is directing a thing for Showtime that's going to document that era and four decades at the comedy store you know my era with david letterman jay leno and everything and then the next year with sam kennison and so in each decade you know it's going to be very interesting on showtime yeah um the comedy store was always a magical place i was fortunate to be walked in with sam kennison and rick wright from ricky ruby um who basically sat on either side of mitzi to make her watch that thumbs up that you were talking about both from her and from the tonight show the validation that yeah. you get from outside sources, that seems to be lifeblood for a lot of comics. But for guys like yourself, you always had the confidence and you always knew whether they were gonna approve or not, you were gonna do this. But it, you know, their approval just made it easier. How do you deal with dark times? How did you deal with rejection? How did you deal with things that weren't as forthcoming as you wanted them to be so that you could keep, keep going on in spite of bad times? Two things. <clears throat> number one, number one, I'm very spiritual. You know, I mean, I, mean, I, 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 I'm, I believe in God. I mean, I, a lot of people, I believe in a higher power. And I, many times, it brought me to my knees, you know, many times where I was on my knees. And, and I would pray. I said, this is what I want to do. But the other thing, I read every positive mental attitude book I could read. I read The Power of Positive Thinking, Norman Vincent Peale, A Guide to Confident Living. <clears throat> I read Maxwell Maltz, um, um, uh, Psycho-Cybernetics. I, mean, I read um, The Magic of Believing by Claude Bristol, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy. I read all those books. And today I give motivation speeches 
to around the world to corporate America and, and colleges and, and high schools and to comedians. It, I, I talk on four subjects, perception, visualization, self-talk, and develop a sense of humor. And I, I can't tell you how many comedians I met who have no sense of humor. <laughs> That's true. And the sense of humor, by my definition, by my humble definition, is not when you have the ability to laugh at other shortcomings and misfortunes, when you have the ability to laugh at your own. You gotta learn to laugh at yourself and, and not take yourself too seriously. But those principles I put in place when I was sleeping in the abandoned car, you know. One of the books I read that changed my life, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind by Joseph Murphy, whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve, what, that was written thousands of years ago, it's biblical in nature. Whatever the mind can see and believe, it will achieve. Now, that means that the emotion, that whatever the, the subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction, it only knows what you program into it. So you need a flight plan. This is your aircraft. This is the vehicle you were given. The vehicle says, where do you want me to go? The subconscious mind doesn't know the difference between truth or fiction. So when you image the end result you want and see it, feel it and believe it, the subconscious mind says, now I know where you want me to go. But also it works like this. If you say, what was his name? What was his name? You're saying, what was his name? What was his name? You just sent a picture back to your subconscious mind of that person. You're telling me, what was that person's name? And two days later, you say, give me a cup of coffee. Joe Stratovich. Where did that come from? It came from once you gave the subconscious mind a problem, it doesn't rest till it finds a solution. Those billions of cells go into action. So whatever you see and believe. So when I read this book, The Power of Your Subconscious Mind, it taught how to do that just before you go to sleep at night and just when you wake up in the morning, because that's when your conscious mind is most at rest. So your subconscious mind is then open to suggestion. So, but it has to see a picture with an emotion to kick it into action. Whatever the mind can see and believe it will achieve. So when I was sleeping in the abandoned car and I couldn't get on at the comedy store, I was hitchhiking there every night trying to get on at the comedy store. Every night before I'd go to sleep, I'd image Johnny Carson saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. I'm going to do this here while I'm talking to you. Uh, hold on one second. I should, I should have had this out. I would, I would picture Johnny Carson saying, you're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. Knowing that if I was sitting there talking to Johnny, I'd already succeeded doing stand-up. Because in those days, you had to do, you know, a, a successful stand-up. You had to do two or three shots on The Tonight Show before Johnny called you over, you know. So I, if, I, if I was sitting on the couch next to Johnny, then I'd already succeeded doing the stand-up comedy, right? So I would see that every night. You're a funny guy, Tom Dreesen. You're a funny guy. This is the picture I imaged in my mind when I was sleeping in the abandoned car. Can you see that? Or Absolutely. That? That's beautiful. See, this, this is, you know, nothing can become a reality unless it's thought first. This is the picture I, I image in my mind that, that uh, when I was sleeping in the abandoned car. So I use those principles that I learned all those years. You know, again, nothing can become a reality. Those headphones you have on your head, that, that, that was a thought before it became a reality. That everything you see in front of you, you know, that my Navy had. These were thoughts before they became realities. The same thing applies to your life. And once you image that end result, then the body says, now I know where you want me to go. The pilot who flies the 747 from LA to Boston every day, do you think he drives out, drives 100 miles an hour, right? Drives out to the tarmac, runs aboard the aircraft, gets, takes off down a runway, and when he gets airborne says, now where am I going? He files a flight plan. You need a roadmap, you need a flight plan. That's why people wander aimlessly, because they don't have a flight plan. I'm giving you one of my lectures here. I hope, forgive me, but I, I, I get that stream of consciousness. I go, you know. Well, thanks for not only giving it to me, but to any comics that are going to be watching. Um, what is your writing process when you're developing new material? How does that come about for you? Well, you, you know, it comes to me, and that's why I always kept wherever I went. I always had a pen and, and a pencil in my pocket in those days. Now today we got cell phones and tape recorders and all that kind of stuff, but. I, I wasn't good at sitting down for an hour and writing. What I was good at was a thought would come to me, I'd quick write it down. I might be having lunch with you, talking to you, and you say something, I go, oh, you know, or we watch somebody do something and you say, you know how that could have been funny? And, and you, now you write it down. Then at some point, I'd be on air, airplanes, on cocktail napkins and stuff, I'd stuff them. And at some point, I'd bring them all out and I'd bring my lying pad out, you know, and I'd start long handing the joke. You know, I, I, this was the concept I had. 
and I start writing the long-handed joke. When you're writing a joke, there's two rules. Remember, remember, make it easy. Number one, comedy is nine-tenths surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you were going to say that or do that. So the setup line has to hide the punchline. And the other rule is there are no victimless jokes. You know, who's the victim here? <laughs> Many years ago, when I was a new comedian, four months in the business, in Chicago, there was a place called Mr. Kelly's, and Mort Sal was working there. And Mort Sal in those days was a big star, been on television, big comedy star. I snuck backstage and scared. You know, it's only four months in business, and I knocked on his dressing room door. I thought there was in between shows, and I thought that his manager or somebody's going to answer. He answered. He was all alone. He said, yeah. I said, hi, my name is Tom Dreesen, and I'm a new comedian. I wondered if I might talk to you. He said, yeah, come on in. He talked to me for almost two hours before the next show. I never forgot that. And, and, and I swore, if, when I walked out that night, I was on cloud nine that a man of his stature would talk to a little low-life guy like me, you know, that, just brand new in the business. I said, if I ever make it, if I ever make it anywhere in this business and a young comedian asked me for help, I'm going to remember this night forever. You know? But in that conversation, he said to me, do you write your own material, Tom? And I said, yes. He said, remember, they're wrong. I said, who? He said, they. He said, who are you writing about? The government? They're wrong. The airlines? They're wrong. You know, the guy dating your daughter, he's wrong, you know, or you're wrong. You know, somebody's got to be wrong. And it's joke. And I, and it was a great lesson. The comedy is nine, 10 surprise. The audience laughs because they didn't think you're going to say that or do that. So hide that punchline. And then the other is there are no victimless jokes, you know? So that's what, what I think about. Sometimes when a joke isn't working and I'll say, gee, I thought this was fun. And I'll analyze it. Sometimes it's placement. I shouldn't put it in the front. I should put it here or here, or it's better following that. And sometimes it's just because I, they saw it coming or there wasn't a clear enough thing. That's, that's a wonderful clinic I'm writing you just gave right there. Um, I do want to ask two more questions because I know we're up against time you need to go. Uh, the first question is, who are the comedians that influenced you? Who are the ones that, that are your Mount Rushmore? When I first started out, you know, there, were, there were two comedians that I watched, Richard Pryor and Jack Benny for totally different reasons. Prior, because I grew up in a neighborhood, predominantly black neighborhood. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. I have an album in front of an all-black audience, you know, that I did in my own hometown, you know, where I grew up at in the south side of Chicago. But so Richard, he spoke for my soul. When Richard was doing his stand-up, and I grew up with guys like that. I grew up with people like that. So he's, to me, it was like watching a guy in the street corner where we hung out at. And then Richard was like a guy in the street corner talking to us. So I watched him a lot. And liked him, a lot, and I knew him, and I liked him a lot. But the other was Jack Benny. Jack Benny, to me, was a brilliant comedian because he made it look easy. A person is an artist in any endeavor, any endeavor, truck driver, bricklayer, bartender, when you make your work look one word, effortless. Frank Sinatra made singing look easy. You will be my music, you will be my song. You say, I can do that. No, you can't. He just made it look like you could. Jack Benny made comedy look easy. He made it look effortless. And, and that's what I wanted to be. I wanted to make it look effortless. You know, as I told you earlier, conversation, not presentation. So I, I studied them both. I watched them both. And, and that's what helped me. And the final question, you've been in show business for 50 years. You're not slowing down. What's next? Well, I'm, you know, gosh, I got so many things happening now. I'm doing a one-man show that's uh, 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 called uh, An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. It's a 90-minute show in theaters where I do stand-up comedy, but then I end up over in a bar, and I start telling stories, and pictures come on the screen authenticating the stories. So I, I produce that. It's been very successful. Now I have a book coming out called Still Standing. You know, it's my 50th year in children. Still Standing, My Journey from Streets and Saloons to the Stage and Sinatra. So I'm going to be calling my one-man show that the book comes out July 9th. It's on sale right now on, on Amazon and on Barnes & Noble on pre-sale. But it physically comes out uh, June 9th. And so I'm going to be doing all that. Uh, I'm doing my one-man show. I'm doing my motivation talks. I'm going to be doing a Zoom thing like you and I are doing right now. Mm -hmm. For Sinatra fans, I'm going to do that in about three weeks uh, where they can watch me tell these stories of Frank and, and do like now, ask me questions at the end. I'm going to be doing that. I got so many things going on. Uh, Tim Reed and I were pitching the Netflix a six-hour miniseries of what it was like being America's first black and white comedy team, touring the land. So that's coming up. I just got so much going on. You know, uh, Emerson said nothing can be achieved without enthusiasm. You know, uh, and, and uh, you know, 
and so that's and so I, I'm enthusiastic about being a stand-up comedian. That's great. Thank you so much for for doing this podcast. Thank you so much for being my first guest. And I cannot wait until uh, the situation in America has changed, and I can actually next time in Los Angeles go out there and shake your hand. It's a, a pleasure meeting you virtually and spending time. And please stay safe and hopefully do this with me again later on. Anytime, anytime. I really appreciate it. And, and to all the stand-up comedians out there, keep doing it. You're, you're what we need more than anything, especially now. You know, we need your humor. We're going to have to maybe reinvent ourselves because I don't know how long before crowds are going to start coming in. So what you're doing right now, we need, we need to hear their laughter for us. You know, otherwise it isn't funny, you know. <laughs> but we'll have to figure it out. We definitely will. Thank you so much, Mr. Dreesen. I personally have been doing stand-up for over 30 years, and this hour and a half conversation that I just had with Tom Dreesen might have been one of the highlights of my career. There's nothing better than learning from the people that have mastered what you want to do. Some of the points that he made ring true today to the next generation of comics and are things we can all learn from. And it was even more wonderful to hear him say how I turned to advice from people like him. He turned to advice from people like Mort Saul. Uh, it's a very generational quality that comedy has with, with itself in that the, the previous generation teaches the current generation. And it's my hope that this series will give comics a, a, a destination to go and learn from the comics that they don't have access to on a one-to-one -one basis. So enjoy uh, this broadcast and please tune into our next broadcast. Thank you so much. This is Jim, the Comedy Legacy Series. Bye-bye. Worldwide Productions.